have a couple of announcements before we get to uh, our message today. Um, first of all, I want to remind uh, youngsters that we have Blast Zone here, and this one, uh, th- there are various colors, so don't, if you didn't get a red one, don't, don't fear, they're all the same, but that's for uh, young ones to take notes in, uh, there's some coloring stuff, etc. in there, and today, since Miss Brianna is in Children's Church, I will be the one grading your papers. So, and for you adults, you didn't get one of these, I'm sorry, but you do have an outline in your bulletin, and Pastor Woody will be grading your papers over here. Just so you know. So, <laughs> so kids, if you want grace, then fill out the adult one and go see Woody. Because no, I'm just teasing. So, um, and then also, I wanted to uh, give a reminder that uh, we will not be having evening church tonight, uh, nor next Sunday. And so, uh, we're going to start that up on the third Sunday uh, from now, uh, not tonight. Uh, not the next one, but the one after that, we will be joining together again. That's at six o'clock uh, when we start back up over in the fellowship hall. And so I wanted to encourage you for that and also didn't want you to be lonely if you were the only one to show up here. That might not be all that fun. We're going to be reading today in uh, uh, Luke chapter two, and um, we're looking at verses 41 through 52. And uh, I figured since it's the day after uh, Christmas, so I guess I can still say Merry Christmas to you, and I can also say Happy Boxing Day to my Canadian family who may be watching on the camera. Also, I don't know, but um, uh, since uh, we've we've spent uh, several weeks looking at the Advent uh, events, uh, I thought it would be appropriate for us to look now at uh, kind of the next event that happens after the uh, Advent portion in. Uh, the Gospels, and so we're going to be reading in uh, Luke chapter 2, looking at verses 41 through 52 today. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. Father, we join together in this way today and worship you. We declare that you alone are God and that we are amazed. We are amazed at your 
tender mercies, your care for us, and your saving work in Christ. We are amazed that you've given us your word and that we get to meet together and discuss it. We are amazed that you have given your Holy Spirit to live within each Christian who ministers to us. And Father, this morning as we come together in this time and in this way, we ask that you would minister to us now. That your Spirit would take your word and apply it in our lives. Help us to understand and know you better. So we ask for your work this morning in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're just uh, going to take a few minutes and work through this passage. I don't know if you've, uh, if you've really worked through this in much detail on your own, but it's a, it's a, a very uh, unique passage because we have lots of detail in the Gospels, particularly about the Advent and all that went on in, in connection with that, and then with the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so you've got this giant gap of time in between, and we, we know almost nothing. And this passage alone gives us a peek into Jesus and uh, what he was like during that time and the things that were going on, and, and especially in this episode where he's a 12-year-old boy. And so just want to uh, work through this passage a little bit together and uh, see what the Lord might have for us from this little vignette in his life. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Of course, if you remember reading in the Old Testament and, and even the discussion we have in the, in the New Testament about the Passover, that was, that was a, a major feast and people were to come and attend that, particularly the, the men were to do so. And, and in this case, the whole family would go down there and that was their custom. They would go down during the time of the Passover. And you, of course, remember the story of where Passover came from and that was uh, at the time of uh, Israel's captivity within Egypt, and they were going to be brought out. Remember in Moses' day, and they were going to be brought out of the land of Egypt and taken into a land of promise. And you have all the plagues, and the, the final plague was that plague of the Passover, where uh, the, the people were told that an angel of death is going to come and going to visit death on each household, the firstborn within each household, um, on, a, on a given night, and in order to prepare for that, in order to escape that judgment, what you did was you would take this Passover lamb and you would bring it into your house on the 10th day of the month and you would keep it there uh, in your household until the 14th day of the month and then you would, you would put that lamb to death and then you would uh, cook it a certain way and then you would eat it a certain way, etc. And, and if you did that, and when you killed the lamb, you applied the blood to the to the, the doorposts on your house, you would escape that judgment. The angel of death would pass over you, pass over your household, and thus you would have life. And so every year after this, they were to celebrate the Passover, to be reminded of God's delivering work uh, in bringing them out of the land of Egypt and into ultimately the promised land. And so they were to celebrate this again and again. And of course, we know we who know the end of this story, we who, who know where this is going to go, recognize that Jesus himself is the Passover lamb. That he's not, he's not just a, a lamb that was put to death thousands of years ago to bring about the uh, deliverance of the people from the land of Egypt, but he's the ultimate and final one who will secure for us the passing over of 
that judgment upon us, that we would be safe, that we would be secure because of his blood. And so we have a peek at that, even in the beginning of this story, that this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to be that Passover lamb. And if you think to the end of the Gospel of Luke, and really the end of all the Gospels, where you head towards the crucifixion, and of course, we know that that itself is the Passover. And so you have this kind of inclusio that that uh, Luke here is is trying to to prime us already for what Jesus is going to do. And so his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12, they went up according to custom. So here you have this very unique picture of the Passover lamb actually going to celebrate Passover. But before time, he's 12 and, uh, and his whole family goes up to do that. So that's kind of the setting, and that's what's going on. And that should help us to begin to think about what's going to be accomplished or what's going to be discussed uh, in, maybe in this passage or maybe in the whole book of Luke. And so, first of all, we see Jesus at Passover in those first couple of verses. And then we see a very interesting thing, Jesus among the teachers. When the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But, supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. So you, you can imagine the story. I mean, I hopefully, you know, most families have not experienced this, though. But some have, where you drive off and leave a child somewhere. That's awful, Right. Well, that's not quite this circumstance. Uh, here you've got a whole group of people that would travel down from Jesus' home up in Nazareth. They would go all the way down and travel down for the, for the Passover. They would celebrate there, and then they would return all together. Right? So it's like the whole church kind of going down together. And so, um, you know, we uh, unfortunately have left our son Gabriel. And, of course, where we left him was that church. You know, and so uh, at least he was, you know, safe because he was amongst us. But that's kind of what's going on is that the whole group is traveling together and they haven't seen Jesus for a while. They're thinking, well, you know, Jesus is an, ob an obedient kid. And so he didn't like run off. And we know all these people. So he's here somewhere. <laughs> and so they just keep traveling. Right. So we can kind of give them a pass in their parenting on this. But they travel a whole day and probably that night, you know, when they're cooking dinner or they're they're uh, getting ready for the evening or whatever. And they're thinking, where is Jesus? I haven't seen him all day. And so they realize by when they go around, and they ask everybody, they don't know. Uh, no one's seen him all day. Last time I saw him, it was, you know, back in Jerusalem. So they spend another day traveling back and uh, then they search for him for a whole day. Right. So he's been been away from him for three days. Right. So you would be very concerned at this time. And of course, uh, they were concerned as well. But think about this. You know, when you were a 12 year old child. Or perhaps your own 12-year-old child or, or grandchild, and you can think, you know, they might have had something to do with disappearing. <laughs> you know, like uh, when we perhaps can't find one of our children, he may or may not be hiding somewhere. We have to look around and find him, right? He's being disobedient. But Jesus was never disobedient. Jesus had always been right where he should be. He had always been doing what he should be doing. And... 
so this would have been an unusual experience for them. Maybe, you know, for us parents, we, we kind of have to look around a little bit for our kids at times, right? Jesus was always where he should be. And so there was some consternation. They had never dealt with this with Jesus. Now, they had dealt with it with the younger siblings, I'm sure. But they never had to deal with this with Jesus himself. He was always where he should be doing what he ought to be doing. And so they go and they search. Um, they search for him. In verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple. Right? So three days. That's a long time. So they're amped up. They're anxious. They're, they're worried about him. And they finally find him. And they find him in the temple. Right? So that's a good place if, you know, if you're going to... If you're going to find him somewhere in Jerusalem, probably the temple is the single best place, right? But it's what he's doing that's astounding. He's sitting among the teachers. Right, so here's this 12-year-old boy sitting among the teachers. And not just sitting there, not just, you know, like doesn't have anywhere else to go or he's just eating his lunch or whatever. He's listening to them and he's asking them questions. This is where it really gets unique. Because a 12-year-old boy, sitting amongst the teachers, quizzing them back and forth, back and forth. He's asking them questions. They're asking him questions. There's a quiz going on. What an amazing thing to find a 12-year-old boy sitting amongst the doctors, as it were. The doctors of theology. The doctors of Scripture. And there he is, and that's the context. And of course, later on in his ministry, that's going to be a normal thing. That he'll be among the teachers. He'll be actually teaching the teachers. Right? He'll be teaching in the, in the temple. And, and the, the Pharisees and the scribes are kind of standing on the edge because they don't really, you know, maybe they don't want to submit to him. Maybe they don't like what he has to say or various things going on at different times in his ministry. But here, he's not teaching the teachers. He's, he's asking and answering questions. He's in conversation with them which is a unique kind of thing. He's going to be teaching him later, but right now he's seated there. And all who heard him, verse 47, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Those sitting there listening weren't just thinking, look at that. You know, the kid didn't even shave yet. Well, they didn't shave in that culture, but, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a 12-year-old boy, you know, sitting amongst the teachers. Doesn't he know he's out of his depth? Doesn't he know that he's the only one there without a beard? Doesn't he recognize? That's not what they're astounded at. They're astounded at the answers that he gives. They're astounded at the understanding that he has. They recognize he belongs there. He's not out of place among the teachers. Even as a 12-year-old boy. You know, you can tell when, uh, even just by the question someone asks, what is their grasp of the material you're talking about? For example, we had a benevolent situation come up this last week. Uh, it started a little over a week ago, but someone was, uh, their car was broken down and they weren't sure exactly what the problem was and they had talked to somebody about it and, and gotten a little bit of an answer. It was kind of fuzzy. And so that person came and talked to me about it. And they said, you know, there's something wrong with the gizmo. And I was like, okay, you know, is that under the hood somewhere? You know, <laughs> I don't really know, but uh, I'm not the one to talk to about that, right? I didn't even have intelligent questions to ask. Right? So I went and talked to Mark Robertson. Mark asked me questions, and I was like, I don't know. <laughs> something under the hood, I think. It's the gizmo or the who's it or whatever. There's something wrong with it, right? I wasn't the one to ask questions, right? I wasn't the one to answer questions. I didn't know, right? Well, then we got Andy Allen involved, and so then I kind of stepped to the side and let two smart people talk about 
they knew what the who's it was in the, in the, in the gizmo. And to listen to them ask questions and answer to each other, I was like, well, th- this, is, this is their world. I can tell they know what they're talking about. I don't, right? You can just tell by the questions someone asks or doesn't ask how engaged they are, how, how they understand the topic. This is why someone who's a good interviewer is skilled at being able to ask the right question, even on a, a, a breadth of topics. You can tell this person is good at this topic. They understand uh, this subject matter. Well, that was, that was what people thought when they saw Jesus. They didn't just think, oh, look at the beardless boy sitting amongst the men talking about the Torah. They said, well, I mean, he does look a little funny. He's shorter than them. He has no beard. But he's right there with them. His answers are astounding. His questions are amazing. They are insightful. So Jesus, among those teachers, uh, he fit right in. Everyone listening was amazed at his understanding. They were amazed at his answers. He fit right in. This was his subject, and he knew what he was talking about, and he knew what the doctors were talking about. What an amazing scene to have gotten uh, a peek at. So that's Jesus among the teachers. That conversation, I would have loved to have been there. And I kind of wondered as I studied this, and there, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't find any evidence of this, but the, the feast of the Passover has just been celebrated. And this is a major high feast. This is a, uh, an important thing for, for their nation to celebrate together all the way from the time of the Exodus. And in fact, they were told back when the Exodus uh, was happening and they were given instruction about what's to, to happen with the Passover, they were said, by the way, when you get into the land and your kids ask questions, tell them what God has done. And so here you have Jesus sitting there asking the question. I wonder if they were discussing Passover. And I wonder if he was asking them questions just to, just to learn more about it or perhaps teach more about it, help them see what really they were thinking about the Passover meant. I would love to have seen that conversation, but that's that's not Luke's main point here, so we'll move on from that. But what an interesting discussion that would have been. So that's Jesus uh, among the teachers. What about Jesus and his parents? Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. We found you. And here you are, seated in such a place, doing such a thing. And his mother said, son, why have you treated us so? You know, I wonder if Jesus had ever been reprimanded. And this isn't exactly a reprimand, but... Yes, it depends on tone of voice, perhaps. Moms can do that kind of thing. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Three days we've been looking for you, kid. And here you are. Why have you treated us so? I think that's a legitimate question. Right? And here we look back and we're... You know, we're used to Jesus as the grown man and his relationship with his mother. You know, you see that change, particularly in, in, uh, as the Gospels progress. Now he's ministering to her in a very different way. And, and you have him, uh, you know, normally in a different kind of context. But here he is, a 12-year-old boy. And when your mom asks you a question, you answer, right? At least in the household I grew up in, right? And so he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house or uh, that could be translated uh, about my father's business or doing my father's things? It's, it's not really clear, but those are all connected, so I'm not too worried about it. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? 
right? So on the one hand, we think, okay, Jesus, it's, it's clear what it means. He's trying to indicate to them, you should have known what I would be doing, right? You, know, you already knew the answer to that, or you should know the answer to that, right? That, that's clear that that's what he means, but that, that begs a second question. How? How were they supposed to know that? In his mind, it seemed like it was should have been obvious to them, but how? Well, I think what he means is that they should have known who he was and thus what he would be doing. If you remember, back in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 to 33, the angel had told her before she conceived, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. This is, you know, these are some significant titles. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Right? There's a lot in there that should have tipped her off to who this child is. And this seems to be evidence even in the text that she was tipped off, that she did understand, that she held on to that, that that was something important, that that didn't just go over her head. She was astonished. She was amazed. So she should have known. And the shepherds who had heard from the angels back in, uh, in uh, earlier in this same chapter, verses 11 and 12 of Luke 2, what they heard from the angel was, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. She should have known. Right? Those, those shepherds went and reported to her what exactly they had heard. And, we, and so we came here where we were told, and what do you know, there's this baby. Oh, he was born to you, a virgin? Oh, that's weird. Right? She should have known. They should have known, and they did. I think she did pick up on it, right? And so I think that's what Jesus is saying here when he says, um, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? I think he's, he's trying to call that back to mind that yeah, a long time has passed. I mean, that was, that was over a decade ago that all this stuff happened. But don't forget, don't forget who I am. I'm not just the oldest child of my family. I'm not just a 12-year-old boy. I'm not just working alongside my dad uh, you know, at his job or something like that. Remember who I am. And so I think he was calling to their attention that fact. By the way, just in passing, there's an interesting, uh, almost a play on words here. Uh, at the end of 48, behold, uh, his, his mom says to him, behold, your father and I have been searching for you. Did you get that? Your father, Joseph, right? Which is a normal, it's not like this is wrong or anything. Like he's the presumptive father. He's the, he's the, um, you know, the, the stepfather. He's the one who's been chosen by God to raise this child, etc. So your father and I, that's a normal way to talk to your child, even in this kind of situation. But did you see Jesus answer? Why were you looking for, for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? It's almost like a play on words, right? Mary says, your father and I were looking for you. And he says, well, let me tell you about my father. I was actually doing exactly what my father wanted me to do. So it seems like uh, that's kind of being drawn to our attention. But nevertheless, they did not understand uh, the saying that he spoke to them. 
So they didn't get it. They didn't, they didn't quite uh, get back up to speed, which we can understand. Nothing like this has ever happened before. <laughs> and so we can, we can give them some slack for taking a while to catch up, right? So they didn't understand what he said in verse 51. And he went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. That's interesting. That's, that's, that's interesting just to ponder that here you have the Son of God, the one who will sit forever upon the throne of David, submitting to mom and dad. That should, that should, uh, that should cause us to think about that for a little bit. He's submitting in this context. What an interesting thing for the Son of God to do. What, a, what an interesting thing for the Messiah to do to go into a context where he submits. And that's what he does. He returns home, is submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. I'll bet she did. <laughs> I bet she never forgot that. And I'll bet that's exactly how Luke found out about this. Who comes on the scene later and he's writing the story. He's, he's writing this gospel account. And he's interviewing witnesses. I bet he got that either directly from her or indirectly, I don't know, but she didn't forget it. All right, so that's Jesus with his parents. But all of that so far is just a story. All of that is just uh, interesting events and, and things that kind of make you think, right? Well, we're really going to be caused to think in this next section because in this last verse, we see that Jesus increases. Jesus increases, and he does so in three ways. Look at verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He increases in those three ways. Now, I'm going to take them a little bit out of order, okay? First of all, he increased in stature. That makes sense to us. He was born as a baby, right? He grew up into a man, so he had to increase in stature, right? He had to grow up physically. He had to mature. He had to go through all that process. This one makes sense, and I think it's important for us to catch on to this because him growing in stature helps us understand how he could grow in other ways. Jesus wasn't, he didn't come out of the womb and, and, and immediately walk off, right? He, he needed to grow the, 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 all that's required for a baby to be able to walk. The muscles and the coordination and the bones and everything being fitted in its place and all that kind of stuff in order for him to be able to walk. So he grew in stature. Now, if we use that as a paradigm, as an analogy, that will help us to understand the other ways he grows. Because secondly, he grows in wisdom. He grows in wisdom. How can that be? So was there, was there a time when Jesus was less wise? Yes. Yes, there was. For example, when he was born as a little baby, he had no wisdom. He didn't, he didn't know to come in out of the rain. He had no wisdom. Well, how, how should we think about this? Am I saying bad things about God? Am I saying bad things about the Son of God? Well, I'm certainly not trying to. And I think a way for us to understand this is to realize what happened when the incarnation happened, when the Son of God took on flesh and became one of us, there was something utterly unique that happened. 
And not just him taking on flesh, not just him appearing to be human, but actually being human, becoming human. How did that happen? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I'll be the first to admit that, right? But, but one of the things that theologians have noticed uh, over the years must be true about this and helps to make sense of all kinds of things that happen is that, that Jesus was one person, but he had two natures. He had two natures. He had a divine nature, and that divine nature never changed. And I do it like half of myself, as if it's half of him, and that's not really true. But I'm just trying to help us understand that in his divine nature, he knew all things. He knew how many little pieces of rock were circling around Saturn. He could do, you know, advanced uh, calculus. He, he knew the history of all things. He knew the end of all things. In his divine nature, he was omnipotent. He was omniscient. He was all of those omnis in his divine nature. But he took on human nature. And human nature is finite. It has a limit. And so, you know, one, one expression of this is that we literally can't know all things because our brains, our minds, can't contain everything. Because we are finite, we have limits. Right? And so in his human nature, he was... He was born with no wisdom whatsoever. In his divine nature, he was all-knowing. But he had human nature as well within his one person. And so this is kind of what I think Paul is getting at in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, who talks about Jesus and says, Though being God, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, actually became man, and in some way set aside the use of Certain things like omniscience, omnipotence, for a time, he didn't use that and functioned as a man. And so as a man, being born as a little baby, he didn't know to come in out of the rain. He had to grow physically and he had to grow in his wisdom. He had to, to grow and understand life better. He, he had to learn how to speak, for example. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to read. Those are all things that he had to learn how to do. He had to learn what it felt like to stub his toe and thus learn from that not to stub his toe. I mean, that's, that's pretty low-level wisdom, but that's wisdom, right? He had to learn that. As a man, he had to learn how to walk in the ways of the Lord. He had to learn and grow. He didn't go from disobedience to obedience. He was never disobedient. But he had to learn, he had to be instructed what obedience was by doing it. And so he grew. He grew in wisdom. He grew in his understanding of what all of life uh, was and all the world looks like and how it works when it's placed in its position under God's lordship. By the way, that's, that's kind of how I define wisdom. Wisdom is living life and understanding all of the world in its proper place under the lordship of God. And thus I know how to do things. And thus I know how to relate to people. Thus I know the consequences of my actions. And I can identify the consequences of the actions of others. Because everything is ordered in my mind under the lordship of God. That's how I define wisdom. And so I see Jesus growing in exactly that way as he learned, as he grew in his human nature. He began to see and understand the whole world fitting under the lordship of God. And he grew in that. He grew in wisdom. He increased in 
wisdom. And thirdly, not just did he grow in stature, grew taller, not just did he grow in wisdom, he grew in favor. He grew in favor with God. Have you thought about that? How could Jesus grow in favor with God? Isn't he the Son of God? Isn't he the Holy One? Yes, he is. Well, then how could he grow in favor with God? Well, the short answer is, as he obeyed God more and more, as he grew in wisdom more and more, God became just that much more pleased with him. He didn't go from being displeasing to God to becoming somehow pleasing to God. He didn't go from a place where he had no favor with God to a place where he had favor with God. But he grew in that favor as he obeyed God more and more, as he grew in wisdom and understanding how all of life relates under the lordship of God. God became just that much more pleased with him. I think a, a quote from, uh, from uh, Thomas Manton here is helpful on this topic. He says, God's favor is that by which he loves his image. He loves his image. The more conspicuous the image of God is in any creature, the more is God delighted in that creature. So in other words, he's saying here that God's favor is that by which he loves his image, and the more clearly he can see that image, the more conspicuous is that image in a creature, the more God's favor shines on that creature. Now, there was more of the image of God to be seen in Christ as a youth than in Christ as a child. The image was becoming more and more conspicuous, more and more visible on the surface, more and more acted out, played out, demonstrated, visible in his life, and thus the favor of God for him increased. I think that's what's happening in this passage. As Manton says, there was more of the image of God to be seen, visible, in Christ as a boy than in Christ as a child. So you see that increasing. You see the more and more Jesus interacts with people, the more and more he's now seated in the temple talking with uh, the teachers. Even though he's a 12-year-old boy, you can see the image of God so visibly demonstrated in his life. And thus, the favor of God was increasing upon him. And so... In other words, the more Jesus walked with God, the more he obeyed God, the more circumstances he got into, the more he grew and matured, even more favor from God was placed upon him because that image of God was, was being more clearly demonstrated. And so I think that's how he grew in favor with God. As he's growing, as he's obeying, it just becomes more and more obvious who he is, and what he's like. And God's favor for him increases. So he increased in stature, he increased in wisdom, he increased in favor with God, and he increased in favor with man. Now, this has a limit, how much favor uh, he, he receives from man, right? Sometimes they consider him good teacher. Sometimes they're very respectful of him, and, and uh, even his enemies wouldn't accuse him of sin and, and things like this. But there were times when they kind of turned on him. And they really kind of started hating him. And though they, though they respected him, they kind of wanted to respect him from a distance. And after a while, they had respected him, and now they just hated him. 
because of what he stood for. So there's a limit to this. But generally speaking, as, as Christ grew up and as he matured, he was a clearly, obviously respectable, holy and righteous man who would receive the favor of man and thus he would increase in favor with God and with man. All right, so that's the story. That's the, uh, that's the overview of what's going on. Now, what does this matter to us? Let's bring it home and let's talk about how do we uh, make something out of this for our own lives. What does this mean for us? Well, I, w- I want to notice something that I kind of blew by, didn't talk about in verse 49. You see what Jesus said, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, Jews of the day would talk about the father, but they wouldn't call God my father. That was presumptuous. That was, that was a bridge too far. You can talk about God as father, but not my father. And even in Jesus' teaching, sometimes you can see a distinction between he's recognizing that his disciples know God as our father or the father, but he can say my father, right? There's a, there's a closer connection that Jesus has with the father. And here's my point. For Christians... God has gone from being the Father out there to being our Father. We've been brought right into that family. That when we've become identified with Christ, when we have become Christians, God is no longer distant. He's no longer out there. He is our Father. He is my Father. That, that distance that had been there before, that the Jews recognized by referring to the Father, is removed for those who are in Christ, and he becomes our father. He is my father. And so, because of the work that Jesus is going to do, we get to participate in that intimacy with the father. What a blessing that is. Maybe we don't recognize it. Maybe we don't realize it. I think we could learn something from the Jews of the day who understood that kind of distance. Yes, he's he's the father. He's, He's our father kind of corporately. But I don't dare say he's my father. And Jesus says, oh, yes, in me you do. And so I get to call the God of glory, the creator of all things, the sustainer. I get to call him my father. And in Christ, you get to call him your father. So that's the first thing we learn from here. The second one. Jesus said when they found him in the temple, didn't you know that I should be in my father's house? Or didn't you know that I should be about my father's business? I think the application for us comes straight across. We should also be about our father's business. Our lives can all too easily become too small, with too small a focus, and frankly, with too small a lordling. Because I'm my lordling all too often. And I'm about my kingdom, and I'm about my business, and I'm about the stuff that I'm doing and what's important to me, and and that's really all I'm thinking about. And I think one of the applications from this passage, even from the 12-year-old boy Jesus, is that we ought to be about our Father's business. Sometimes we need to lift our eyes up off of our own little world, off of our own concerns. Not that our concerns are illegitimate. Not that we can't look after ourselves, not that we can't take care of ourselves. Of course we can. But we need to realize we need to be about His business. 
And sometimes that might cause us to do things that are uncomfortable. Sometimes that might cause us to sacrifice where we might not necessarily want to or invest in a way that we might not necessarily want to. But let's be about our Father's business. Jesus was, and aren't we glad he was? Even at this early date, in discussing with these teachers, and then later in life, as we're going to see him in the temple over and over and over again, and then ultimately as we see him on the cross, aren't we glad Jesus was about his Father's business? So let's be about our Father's business as well. Thirdly, Jesus grew in favor with God. And folks, he has all favor with God. Every last bit of God's favor is placed upon Jesus. And so he doesn't have some left to earn. He's He's already seated. He's already reigning. He's already in place. He's already crowned. He's already got all favor of God. And for the person who's in Christ, that favor that God has for Jesus, He has for you. I think you missed it. The favor that God has for Jesus, He also has for every person who is in Jesus. And so he looks at us because we are in Christ with the full favor that he has for Jesus placed upon us. That's amazing. And it's true. And the world would lie to us about that at every turn. Our flesh would lie to us and tell us, no, I'm sure you've got to do something, you've got to invest, you've got to do something to increase in God's favor. You've got to make God happy somehow, so you better uh, do this, you better do that, or stop doing this, and you can have God's favor if you just do that thing. Do this and you'll live. That's the law. That's not the gospel. The gospel says, Jesus did it and died so that in Him you live. You reap the rewards, the benefits of His obedience. And so the favor of God upon him rests upon you. So I certainly don't want to miss that part. That's rest. That is rest right there. The favor of God shining upon us because of what Jesus did. I know I didn't do it. And I know you well enough to know you didn't do it either. And because of Jesus, nevertheless, there is that grace that favor of God upon us. But, fourthly, rest does not mean inactivity. Rest does not mean inactivity. If Jesus grew and increased, we certainly should too. If the boy Jesus, 12 years old, in the temple, seated with the teachers, talking with them, quizzing them, and being quizzed by them, and astounding everyone with the answers that he gave, if that Jesus, who who's holy and righteous spotless, grew and increased, you and I should grow and increase as well because we don't measure up to the 12-year-old boy even. We should grow and increase as well. Let's not be idle just because we've been made acceptable to God in Christ. We have been made acceptable to God in Christ. Every single person who is in Christ, who is a Christian, has been made acceptable to God because of what Christ has done. 
So now what? Do I need to become more acceptable? No. But I want to grow in that. I want to exercise it. I want to see it played out practically in my life, in my obedience. I want to see what it looks like to behave as though God really is my Father, because He is. And I want to see that played out in my life. As we talked about on Christmas Eve, we've been freed to serve God, so let's serve Him. And that's going to mean growing and increasing. He is, after all, our Father. And like Jesus, we have a desire to be about His business as well, don't we? If you're a Christian, you do. It may be buried amongst other things. It might need to be dusted off a little bit because, you know, you've kind of been about your own kingdom, your own life, your own uh, whatever. But it's in there, that desire to obey God. And that's a desire God has placed there within every Christian. So let's do that. We've been freed. Let's serve God. Let's learn to do that together. Let's grow and increase in that. What a great gospel we have. What a great Savior we have. That He stood in our place obeying for us. Died in our place so that we don't have to. And that righteousness is credited to us. That forgiveness is given to us. And He's still not done. He places within us a desire to serve Him. A desire to walk with Him. A desire that comes from the fact that He... God Almighty is our Father. So praise God for that. And let's walk in that. And let's grow in that. Let's mature in that. Let's let's pursue that. Because He's our Father. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, amazed when we think about 12-year-old boy Jesus, a youth really, in the temple talking about we don't know exactly what, answering questions that would, that would uh, stump others, asking questions that would cause the doctors to think, and all the while leading to preparing for what he's going to do in the rest of his life, in his ministry, in his death, and in his resurrection. Father, we're grateful that you sent your Son for us. We're grateful that in Him you go from being just the Father out there somewhere, or just the Judge, or just some distant um, being. And in Christ, you have made us your children, and we can call you our Father, my Father. Thank you for Jesus, who increased in stature and wisdom and favor with you so that in Him I have your favor. I rejoice and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family up here to pray with you if you would like to pray with them. And I will be over here quizzing the the youngsters on the blast zone. That will be over here in this section. And um, let me uh, remind us of these words from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. God bless you all and you are dismissed.